Hello and welcome to the Toast podcast with me, Laura Barton. For our second series, The Unknown Path, I'm meeting six different authors, actors and naturalists to discuss the various and often unexpected routes their lives have taken. As the light fades on an early evening in March, the writer Louisa Thompson-Britz is going to take us along a chalk path on the South Downs to visit the site of an old Iron Age fort. We're close to her home in East Sussex, where these hills offered inspiration for her latest book, Path, a short story about reciprocity. A marriage of storytelling and nature writing, it is a tribute not only to this landscape, but also to the restorative act of walking. Passing woodland and hawthorn and violets, I want to talk about the rich rhythm of writing, footstep and thought, and the particular relationship between women and the land. So this is a drove road we're walking along, drove path. Yeah, an ancient drove road. The Romans would have used it. You can see here that the roots of all the old hawthorns have been exposed, all the stumps. When we walk this path and when we walk the, the paths that crisscross the South Downs, it's very easy to feel that you're walking in the path of people who've, who've lived here and walked here for, for thousands of years. So where would this path have run between? Certainly when the Romans used it, it would have run up over the rise that we'll ascend and then down into a valley called Oxtedle Bottom. Um, there was a Roman encampment close by. And it's hard as we're walking along it not to notice the big pieces of chalk just everywhere. That feels sort of ancient to me. Strange. It is ancient. Chalk is ancient sea and sunlight. And uh, the way I love the way it spills out from underneath these yeah. these stumps. You know, the rabbits make burrows under there and flick the chalk and the shells. And how long have you been coming up here? Uh, some years now. This walk is the walk I do most frequently. I walk the other side, you know, that long ridge that we probably more commonly associate imaginatively with the, with the South Downs, up along Furl Beacon and Bo Peep. And, but this, because it's a, an outlier, really, I suppose I come here because it's less trodden, fewer people, and also because the artist, Linda Felsey, and I often walk here together in silence or chattering um, in all weathers, and um, I love it, I love it for its wind and its history. And the conversations that we have with ourselves and with the landscape and with each other. Having a, a walking companion is a very special thing, isn't it? It's a very rare thing to have someone that you can happily be in silence with or happily talk to. How quickly did you strike that balance? Well, we met when our children, some of our children were quite small. So initially we were confined to very local walks and very slow walks with toddlers. Um, and as the children have got older, we've picked up the pace a bit. Yeah, I think it's unusual. We found it over time, walking and the capacity to walk together. And as you say, share silence is something that I think takes a while, particularly for me, because ordinarily I like to walk alone. One of the one of the reasons that I love walking is for, for that solitude and the sense of suspensive freedom that comes with escape from, you know, from, from the pace of ordinary life. And when I wrote Path, 
I wrote it by walking. I wrote it by walking the hills around here at all times of day, including at night. Oh, look, a pheasant feather. <laughs> and the striations on that are so beautiful. It's gorgeous. Let's just unlock this path. There's a gate. Everything is illuminated and itself, and you see that I am not a single track, but a glimmering web of ways. I am paw print, tail brush, spore and smews, wing sweep, feather, foil and fur, tracks of deer, sheep, rabbit, pheasant and fox, dust, skim, stroke, touch, hop and brush, casting traces across our shared terrain. What's it like at night around here and how different is it and how different are your thoughts? Well, the paths, particularly if you walk under a full moon, the paths around here are, are luminous at night. They really lead you, they lure you on and up. And you can see as we come up this hill how the chalk path there has been worn down over time. And the chalk really shines out light. So at night you're very much led by the path, but also by your instinct. And part of walking for me is learning to trust my instinct. But you feel more part of the creaturely world yeah. when you walk at night. Our society is dominated by, it's a very visual culture. And when you walk at night, you have to feel your way and hear your way through the landscape. Landscape smells very different at night, doesn't it, as well, quite often? I love to be out at night, particularly in the summer when we've had a warm day. You know, you can be led by your nose, you really can. And there's a deep comfort in the smell of the dried grass. This time of year as well, when the land is just becoming alive again, even I guess a week ago it must have smelled very different and sounded different. Yeah, there's much more birdsong now. Um, a week ago we had high winds, so everything was drowned out by this gorgeous, vital wind. But now, the scent, well, up here, when we get up into the wood, um, if we're lucky, we'll be able to smell the violets that have come up in the past week. On a warm day in spring, the whole wood will, will smell of that kind of soft, flirty, warm scent that, that violets emanate. It's a funny landscape and here because you, in a way, you wouldn't believe you're close to the sea because it feels so hilly. Where I live in Kent, it goes very flat before the sea. Here it's just, you get distracted by the, by the hills a little. Well, the hills fold and, and fall right down to the sea. And then, and then there's literally, you know, the, the fall of the white chalk cliffs and the pebble beaches and the gorgeous sound of the sea. Oh, these hawthorns. These are some of my favourite trees. I love the smell of hawthorns this time of year. And you think how, how stunted they are, but how ancient each one of these is. How old are they, do you think? I imagine that some of them are hundreds of years old. The way that they, I love the way they grow in the direction of the prevailing wind. It's lovely to see them with the little scraps of um, sheep's wool on them as well.
Walking the bare spine of the hills, you leave a path laid with light, boots flecked white with flakes of early sea and sunshine, the sediment of years, scuffed from the chalk-bright realm beneath the turf. Stand still, look back to see how far you've travelled, alive to the path behind and the path ahead, no longer chasing yourself in imagination, nor lagging behind, you curve towards home. Circle slowly, and the world delivers itself to you. So could you tell us where we've walked to? This is the sort of peak of our walk, Louisa. So we've crossed that open bit of downland from where we walked through the hawthorns and then made our way across the grass to climb the north face of Mount Cabin. Mount Cabin, it makes it sound very grand, it's not really, <laughs> it's not really that high. But um, it was an Iron Age hill fort. It was probably used as a settlement in Bronze Age as well. And many years ago in the Victorian era, pit rivers came and excavated many of the burial pits here. They found all sorts of things. They found combs and antlers and spindles and pieces of chalk that had been smoothed and drilled to maintain the tension in weaving. So it was a, it still feels like a very real, alive and living place. I think that's a lot of it really, for me, is about that reverence for the land and for the people who've gone before. I know when I was growing up walking along towpaths, you know, just to be reminded of what had happened to this landscape in previous generations, previous centuries, it was a very stilling thing, I think, really, um, that it had seen sort of violence and other inhabitants and, and had now come to rest. I thought that was... I don't know, put a lot of stuff in perspective when you're growing up. Absolutely, and paths carry and hold those stories. And paths speak to you of the stories of mm. every person who has trodden the path before you. And also the trails and tracks and prints and wingbeat and calls. I love what Hopkins used to say about how everything has an inscape a distinct and perfect essence that it is emanating. Every plant, every blade of grass, every every rabbit. What I do is me for that I came. Absolutely, that absolutely. In those chalk paths, there are often a lot of fossils. I'm holding a fossil that you handed me a couple of minutes ago. We're some miles inland from the sea. Occasionally a fossil is walked or kicked or thrown up and um, Linda found a, a Mikrasta fossil They're in the shape of a heart with those five, you can see very faintly on this one, those fine arms that radiate out from the centre. And it would have been a sea urchin 85 million years ago. So Linda found it here, just here on this bit of chalk path, a few days before we launched Path, the book that we worked on together. And three days after Path was launched, I was walking on the old chalk road near Charleston Farmhouse and picked up this fossil, which was almost identical. It did feel like a gift from the path. It felt like a thank you for all the time that we'd walked these paths and spoken about how we were going to capture their luminosity and, and spirit in the book. That's beautiful. I know as we were walking, you picked up another stone, didn't you? Yes, this is a flint. And it's a hagstone because it's got a natural hole that runs all the way through it. When you see a hagstone, you're always supposed to pick them up. 
and then you string them up outside your front door to ward off evil. And on your walks, you often find little artefacts. What is it about that sort of collecting? And what do you, what's your eyes sees on? It's more about noticing. I really believe that when you walk, you pay attention in a very different way because you're moving slowly. And maybe my inclination to walk slowly and to pick up feathers and stones and twigs and lichen and things that litter our house <laughs> is a strange act of devotion. I still feel like I'm, I'm learning how to inhabit this landscape. Maybe I still feel like I'm learning how to inhabit myself. After 50 years, I finally feel like I can enjoy that sense of embodiment and celebration that I have explored and attempted to express all the way through my life. But this downland landscape is so very inviting. I'm up here all the time. Is that something also to do with the softness because they're chalk hills in the folds of the landscape? It has a very welcoming feel to it, even in sort of wintertime, I guess. Yeah, I think these hills are like a reclining human body. There's a very powerful female energy. The way that the landscape is unchanging, but ever-changing, in the way that, I suppose, in the way that a female body is. I mean, when I think of how my body has expanded and shrunk and stretched with four pregnancies, and, and also how my body's changed in recent months, with the experience of, of having breast cancer and having a breast removed, and how you get used to learning to live with absence. You said earlier about walking through sort of fear and uncertainty. Did that help you in processing being ill and in your recovery? Well, the great irony was <laughs> that I'd written the book Path <laughs> about a journey. I, essentially, I was supposed to be writing to encourage the reader to enjoy um, the journey from where they were to where they wanted to be. Um, and then walking the downland landscape shape-shifted the, the book a little bit. And shortly after it was launched, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And it was an inescapable irony that I had written a book about, unwittingly, about walking through uncertainty. And the reader is encouraged to, to yield and to trust their instinct and to trust the path and to trust that tangled route and then to let go. And at the end of the book, uh, the reader realises that the path that they're on is, is not a, a single track, but it's crisscrossed by all of the lives that have, have passed before them and the lives that will come and the creatures that crisscross the land. And that the reader is not alone. I am the pace and pause of wayfarers, wanderers, drovers and dreamers, dawdlers, soldiers, artists, of ramblers and radicals, poets and pilgrims. In their tread, I follow their purpose and fathom my own. Each makes their mark and leaves their wake across these blunt hills of chalk, wind and shifting light. How easy was it to take your own medicine, I guess, or to, to <laughs> hear your own wisdom, maybe? <laughs> it wasn't easy, but it's been an enlightening journey. You said before about watching the crows 
enjoying the wind the other week. Do you feel like that sometimes when you're writing, that freedom, that gustiness? Gustiness is a great word. Um, I still believe that I need to abandon myself more as a writer and to trust my instinct more and to learn to muck about and to dangle and burl and and enjoy that sense of elevation and wickedness and joyfulness that the crows exhibit when they're hanging about up here in the clouds. It's that skylark we can hear going. It's so close. There it is. It's dropping down like a stone (laughs) and then stopped. You've been listening to The Toast Podcast with me, Laura Barton. The producer is Jeff Bird and the series was conceived by Emily Mears. You can subscribe to The Toast Podcast via your usual podcast provider or listen on Toast Magazine, which can be found via the Toast website, www.toa.st. Our third series will be launching in autumn.